Several dozen Spanish conquistadors with hundreds of slaves, led by Gonzalo Pizarro, marched down from the Andes Mountains into the jungles in their search for El Dorado. A small group is sent ahead to travel by raft down the Amazon River. However, there is one man in the group who is traveling with his young daughter who lusts for power and will use any means to seize control. And the farther they travel down the river, the more the man descends into madness. This is the fictional tale of Aguirre, The Wrath of God, a 1972 film by Werner Herzog. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. On Christmas Day of the year 1560, we crossed the last pass of the Andes. Below us, for the first time, we can see the jungle. In the morning, I read mass, and then we descended through the clouds. When Werner Herzog was directing the film Bad Lieutenant, Ports of Call, New Orleans, starring Nicolas Cage, he finished up early one day. The crew around him asked him if he wanted to shoot coverage. Herzog had no idea what they were talking about. The only coverage he was aware of was for auto insurance. They explained that maybe he should shoot extra footage just in case. But Herzog knew he had all the footage he needed, so he called it a day. Nicholas Cage jumped up on a box, called for silence, and then yelled to everybody, Finally, someone who knows what he's doing! One of my favorite quotes of Herzog's is, Storyboards are the instruments of the coward. In a 2016 interview, he explained his views on storyboards. He said, You're delegated to a cookbook recipe and you slavishly and pedantically rely on it while you're shooting and you're not relying on your creative instincts and you're not relying on something which brings life into movies and excitement into it. We are not accountants. We are not accountants who do number after number after number of storyboard images. A robot could do it ultimately, but what I'm doing, robots cannot do. He also called storyboards a disease of Hollywood, though he does understand why big-budget special effect films need storyboards. Well, hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to the 23rd episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is the second Monday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about one of my favorite films. In this episode, we'll be talking about the 1972 film Aguirre, The Wrath of God, Written, produced, and directed by German film director, screenwriter, author, actor, and opera director Werner Herzog. If you haven't guessed by now, I'm a huge fan of Herzog, especially his early films, such as Strozak, Nosferatu the Vampire, Fitzcarraldo, Cobra Verde, and of course this one. But before I get started, I just wanted to go back to Bad Lieutenant for a minute. If you've never seen the great iguana sequence, it's worth a watch. It's on YouTube. Herzog once said, There's nothing more wondrous than seeing Nicolas Cage and a lizard together in one shot. 
Okay, back to Aguirre. The story is very loosely based on a real Spanish soldier named Loup de Aguirre. Aguirre was a real man, born in 1510, who was a conquistador in South America. His nickname was El Loco, the Madman, and he was best known for his final expedition down the Amazon River in search of the mystical El Dorado. Nancy and Gordon will be in in a minute to discuss the real history of El Dorado. Gordon will enlighten us all about things that I was unaware of. Like, El Dorado isn't a city at all. But anyway, while Aguirre was a real man, this film is all fictional. It's about an expedition that comes down from the mountains of Peru and begins a trip down the Amazon River in search for gold and wealth. Aguirre, who is there with his daughter, is just another soldier at the beginning. But he uses terror and ruthlessness to become an insane leader who only cares about riches. And the film, well, from beginning to end, has a dreamlike quality to it. Rafts will be built and manned by 40 men. They will have the task of finding food and finding more precise indications that will tell us of the whereabouts of El Dorado and of hostile Indians. We have every reason to believe that both are near. Now the story goes that Herzog became aware of Aguirre from an historical adventure and discovery book. He was at a friend's house when he pulled the book off a shelf, and it, it just had a half a page of information about the soldier. But what he read excited him so much that he ran home and began to write. The half page from the book was his only real research, so most of the plot and characters are fictional. But in Herzog's defense, very little is known about the actual man, so, you know, there you go. He wrote the screenplay in just a couple of days, in which he described as writing furiously. Much of it was written on a bus trip with his football team, what we call soccer in America. In fact, he tells the story of sitting in the back of the bus, typing away at his little typewriter, when one of the football players, who was drunk, vomited on a couple of the pages. So he just threw them out the window and didn't worry about it. He said that Klaus Kinski was his only choice to play the lead role. Herzog had known Kinski since he was about 13 years old. You know, in my opinion, Kinski was a great actor, but he was a horrible human being. Anyway. Now, before this film began shooting, Werner Herzog's career and life almost came to an end. On my old podcast, I did the story of Julian Kopeck. She was a woman who, when she was just 17, was on an airplane with her mother. This was in 1971. They were flying over the Peruvian rainforest during a thunderstorm when the plane was hit by lightning and broke apart. Somehow, still strapped to her seat, Julian fell from the sky from around 3,000 feet and survived. She was the only survivor. And she traveled 11 days alone in the Amazon rainforest before being found. She was close to death. Anyway, Herzog was supposed to be on that plane but he was bumped at the last minute. In 1998, Herzog made a documentary of her ordeal called Wings of Hope, in which Kopeck returns to the spot in the jungle where she landed. Now, back to Aguirre. The first thing we see are words from a diary written by a monk named Casper de Carvajal. And I'm sorry about the way I pronounced that. 
Anyway, there was a real monk with that name, but what you see on the screen was a fabrication written by Herzog. We cut to a beautiful shot of the mountains of Peru. According to Herzog, Kinski didn't understand why there were no close-ups of him during the opening scene. Herzog tried to explain that, at the beginning of the story, Aguirre is just another soldier. The basic story is that Aguirre is a man driven to insanity by his dreams of greatness. It's a succession of haunting images as the group heads for disaster. Four days later, on January 4th, we started on our journey. May God be with us. Now, I'm the type of person who doesn't necessarily separate the making of a film from the film itself. Many times when I discover how the film was made and the little things that went into it, I appreciate the film much more. And that's totally the case with Aguirre. I mean, you got Herzog with one stolen camera, a small crew, a very tiny budget, and a very large cast going into the Peruvian rainforest by Machu Picchu and spending five weeks making a film with no modern comforts and such, all the while dealing with an insane Klaus Kinski. By the way, Kinski was paid one-third of the $370,000 budget. Being that it was such a low-budget film, most of the shots were done in one take. This becomes very evident in the scene where they're traveling through the jungle at the beginning. All that was for real, by the way. The hardship, the swamp, the mud, none of that was faked. And there's a scene where Aguirre's daughter, played by Cecil Rivera, is sitting in a covered chair being carried by four men. At one point, you can see it start to fall over to the right, and suddenly a hand comes into frame and pushes it back straight. Well, that was Herzog's hand. He saw it falling over. No budget for a retake. And because it was being shot in the actual jungle... The 450 actors and crew all lived in a barn, sleeping on cots while the film was being shot, as there was no civilization around. Herzog tells the story of selling his boots and wristwatch just to get breakfast. When he was asked why he shot in the actual jungle rather than a studio, he said that a studio would have used up his entire budget in three days. Besides, it looks more authentic being done on location. And I think Herzog just likes doing things like that. Like when he filmed Fitzcarraldo and he actually pulled a boat over a mountain rather than using special effects. When you see the rafts, who were constructed by the natives of the area, fighting the rapids of the river, all that was for real. I think to Herzog, the journey is as important as the destination. And, and that's something I can understand. And I need to talk about his camera. It is true that Herzog pilfered the 35mm camera from the Munich Film School. He used the camera for like eight or nine of his films. He justified the taking of the camera by saying, So I do not consider it a theft. For me, it was a true necessity. I wanted to make films and needed a camera. I had some sort of natural right to this tool. If you need air to breathe and you're in a locked room, you have to take a chisel and hammer and break down a wall. It's your absolute right. Do I agree with that? I don't know. But I do know that if I had tried to do Herzog's accent while reading that, it would have been truly insulting. You don't have to thank me for that, though it was tempting. Kinski, of course, is great in the role as usual, but like I can't separate a film from how it was made, I also find it hard to separate the actor from the person. And in my opinion, Kinski was a monster. There's a story Herzog tells of 
Kinski shooting a Winchester rifle three times into a tent which housed the cast and crew. They were playing cards at night, and he was irritated by all the noise. Allegedly, he shot the tip of a finger off an extra. It was a miracle no one was killed. Herzog confiscated the Winchester rifle, and he claims he still has it today. He considers it one of his prized souvenirs. But now I'm going to take a break. I'm going to turn it over to Nancy, who has a special guest with her today, Gordon. And they're going to tell us some real history. So take it away, you two. Hello, folks. This week, since we have a historical setting for our film and some vaguely historical personages and events that got kind of mushed all together, we're going to drag Gordon in and we're going to talk about, I guess... Spanish colonialism in South America or something? Okay. I don't know. Good. Yeah, let's we'll we'll give a context for this film because a lot of people are probably thinking are these completely fictitious characters or is there any basis in reality to this? I don't know, Gordon, what did you think overall about this film? It's a very weird movie. Yeah. Um it's got some historicality to it, like there's definitely the the Pizarro brothers starting, of course, with Francisco, who was the primary architect of the conquest of Peru. They decided to fan out and see if there were more Perus out there because, you know, here was Cortez. Pizarro, Pizarro did? Pizarro did, oh. yeah. I sent his brothers off to do more conquests. And they conquered Chile and then sort of poked around uh, on the far side of the Andes to see if there was a another one. In fact... One of the Pizarro brothers ended up uh, taking part in the conquest of uh, of Colombia, and there was there were <laughs> three Spanish armies showed up outside of what's now I think it was Medellin um, at the same time. Now you know when this was. Yeah, you're, this is, you're naming names that have a, have a time and place for you, but for people listening, yeah, like, we're talking 1530s, late 30s, early 40s. And this movie is set in 1560, so it's a little they're a little off. Okay. Uh, the Pizarro, I mean, Peru was very much conquered by 1560, uh, and so it uh, so was the it was uh, Chile and Colombia, of course Mexico. Mexico, Cortez's conquest of Mexico started in 1619 and ended in 1621, so 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and then his chief lieutenant, a fellow by the name of Pedro de Alvarado, went off and discovered and conquered the Mayan, or well, the remnants of the Mayan Empire, the various cities there. Um, and so everybody said, oh, there must be other Mexicos, Otro Mexico. So where did they get this idea of El Dorado, or the city of gold, I guess, that they're looking for? Oh, actually, it's the man of gold. Oh, okay. Um, there was an Indian legend. Uh, it talked. There was actually an Indian chieftain in, in the area of um, what's present-day Colombia who would be covered in gold dust. And in a yearly episode of cleansing, he would be covered in, in gold dust and dive into a, a sacred lake would be washed clean of that and uh so this was an actual ritual annual ritual thing yeah and somehow somehow it got, got it got mistranslated into a man of gold 
a man who has a lot of gold. No, a man, a statue oh, of pure gold. Oh, 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 So his figure of approximately six foot tall statue of pure gold, that's a lot of gold. Yeah. That's a lot, a lot, a lot that's of gold. That's a heavy, heavy chunk of gold. And, <clears throat> for example, the uh, in Peru, when the Pizarros and their army captured the Inca, El Inca, um, they demanded a ransom uh, and the it was a, a, a room it was a pretty good size, yeah, fairly good sized room uh, had to be filled with gold and it was uh, of course the Spaniards did not honor their demand and they ended up killing Atahualpa anyway but uh, there's a lot of gold to be had and so the, anyway there was it was known that there was gold and silver uh, by 1560, by the 1560s, yeah, the the two San Luis Potosis had been discovered. San Luis Potosi in Peru, which is a mountain of silver. That's a place. That's a place. Okay. Literally, it was a mountain of silver ore. Oh. And then there was the San Potosi, or San Luis Potosi de Zacatecas in Mexico. So that was 1545. They discovered that, and it. They still mine silver there. So, Today, they yeah. still mine it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, wow. Zacatecas is still a major silver-producing part of Mexico. Um, so the <clears throat> there's a lot of lot of riches to be had. And, of course, gold and silver were standard in, you know, in the old world as means of, um, of exchange. Actually, if you want to get into something really cool, uh, we'll get into a neat theory here that around... 1450, the 1450s, in a series of, of rulings, the Chinese bureaucracy, Chinese and the emperor, decided that taxes would be paid in silver, not in kind. Hmm. And so all the silver in the old world got sucked into China. China became this big vacuum cleaner. And oh. so the price of silver went skyrocketing. So when the Spaniards discovered all the silver in the new world, it uh, caused, not inflation, but deflation of silver so the silver became worth less sure. but China still sucked huge amounts of it in well they were the biggest economy in the world by far and then the the silver went there and the difference between what Spaniards could mine the silver for in the new world and what the Chinese would pay for it pretty much paid for the the uh, Spanish Empire for wow. about 300 years now I read somewhere in my wee bit of research for this that you know, we both were wondering if, if we hadn't read descriptions of this film online, it would have been hard to know what the heck was going on half the time. Now, you have a historical context. So you could say, oh, well, they're basing this on this and they're basing that on right. that. And some of the characters, I mean, there was an Agira. He existed. There was that, that father, Car- Carvajal, or however you pronounce right, his name. Carvajal. Yeah, and, and, and Lope obviously. De Aguirre. Yeah, and obviously the Pizarro brothers. And right. there were. A lot of these people at Carvajal was on an expedition, but he was on a different expedition. So, it was a lot earlier. Yeah, and he's just cherry-picked these characters and mushed them into his own story. So this guy I read in uh, an article in the South Atlantic Review from a few years back was basically giving Herzog um, a pass, saying, well, it's like Shakespeare. He's like, Shakespeare, Herzog begins with the chronicle accounts of events and personages and then reshapes and embroiders upon these historical chronicles, 
providing answers and revealing more puzzling questions, not only turning history into art, a tenuous distinction in any case, but mediating upon the makers and the making of history. And this is from Gregory A. Waller. And I don't know, that seems a pretty pretentious way of saying he just did whatever he wanted to and made it all artsy-fartsy. That, yeah, that's about it. The movie has so many horrible historical errors, it's just laughable. Oh, it's it's sad because it's kind of beautifully shot. I mean, there's nothing wrong with cinematography. The sound is kind of wonky in spots. Some of their sound effects are weird and uh, that kind of thing. But, you know, it had the potential to be really, really good. And it just is kind of cheesy. And especially at the end when, spoiler, when everybody starts dying on the raft, it's like they half of them have these cute little parting shots that they give. Oh, well, I guess arrows are fashionable these days. Ugh, I'm dead now. It, it, it just gets really goofy at the end. But it starts out, you, you see this beautiful telephoto shot of them scaling down this mountainside, snaking down. It's a beautiful shot that it opens with. And then you cut to being right there on the trail with them and... As a costume historian, I'm looking at this thinking, what the heck are these people wearing? Oh my God. Uh, it's so awful. Not only is the costuming horrible, but to me, the armor and weaponry is horrible. It's just, it, it's it's pulled straight out of, you know, Western costume for some cheesy yeah. B movie, which I guess this could qualify as. The time periods of the armor is all over the place. The, clo the clothing that the girls are wearing, and we're going to get back to why there are women there, are just, like, not found in nature. There's nothing historically anything about anything those girls are wearing. And why is their hair down all the time in that hot weather? Oh, you've got, oh my word. You've got Aguirre, who is uh, wearing armor from, I don't know, mid-1400s or even the 1300s. And then you've got some of his soldiers who are wearing, you know, very up-to-date stuff. It's badly done but mm -hmm. it's up to date and uh, their their swords are oh, obviously little, bad props bad props but they're also a little too modern oh yeah and then they have these matchlocks which actually aren't too horrible for what they they're purported to be their Ma cannon is horrible matchlocks being their muskets the matchlocks yes ma <laughs> matchlock caboose's mm -hmm. um Oh yeah, the cannon is not an actual. Oh, I mean, when you've got two guys carrying the tube down right. a hill, it's like mm -hmm. uh, two guys couldn't lift that if it were really made out of bronze or, or whatever. It's supposed to be iron, but it's yeah. still. But they, it, it's. Ugh, yeah, it's, it's bad. And the the suspensory gear for carrying their weapons is absolutely horrifically sword bad. belts. Sword and belts are just bad, 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 yeah. bad, bad. And the. The research was there. He just didn't choose. Herzog just didn't choose to use any of it. Hey, this is art. Back off. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and and you can get away with that. Like in um, parts of the Caribbean, you had various characters spanning about you know 150 years <laughs> of fashion. Of fashion. Mm -hmm. But that worked because that was you knew this character is here. This character is there. And it's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. And then, but now, Aguirre, the Wrath of God, is kind of a fairy tale, too. Yeah. Uh, and you've got him playing, you know, Richard III. He's ranging. Him being Klaus Kinski. Klaus Kinski, yeah. The, the Aguirre character is sort of doing the Richard III hunchback thing, which is really bizarre. And, and 
you wonder what the heck is going on with this guy sounds like an actor choice i guess he was difficult to work with he's like yeah you want to do that fine whatever yeah i well i can tell he was difficult to work with yeah it's a weird movie and why are there women there the women's clothing is terrible but why now apparently the actual historical character of Lope de Aguirre did have his daughter along with him and that um, Ursua did have his mixed blood mistress with him on expedition. So that that was they're there because the historical people that these characters are based on, that's who they had with them. But on the other hand, it makes no sense. And she's running her, you know, the mistress running around in the jungle in this velour slash velvet costume must have been completely miserable and hot. It's got an obvious zipper down the back and it's covered with plastic lace and it's just like community theater costuming. Well, there's no, nothing, no undergarment type stuff. Or yeah, support she or has no, like there's no foundation under that, no petticoats, no bum roll, nothing. It's just a Halloween costume. And Gordon and I were talking about this. You can get away with a lot of artistic license if other elements of your film are top drawer. Right. Like you can get away with a weird sketchy plot if the acting is amazing and there's great character development and great special effects. Or you can get away with some bad cinematography if your sound is great and you know you've got to something has to be great about it. And in this movie, there's some pretty good cinematography, but there's there's a very rudimentary plot. You never know what's going on or why they're doing anything. There's no character development. You watch Agira kind of go crazy in the jungle, but he starts out a little bit sketchy to begin right. with. Right. He's a dodgy character, and he's greedy and, and uh, tyrannical kind of from the get-go, and he just gets slightly worse as it goes along. Yeah. And well, I also, the, the long, lingering shots Herzog seems to love. And it's beautiful scenery. I mean, they shot this on location. They shot it chronologically. They shot it on a river. Everybody was on rafts on the river. The film crew was on another raft. So they suffered to make this. But I don't know if the result was worth the suffering that they had to do to create this. Well, I think it's, it's this is actually an exposition about Werner Herzog himself <laughs> going mad while trying to make this film. Someday maybe we'll do Fitzcarraldo. I guess that was even worse. There, there are a lot of there are a lot of questions. There were a lot of moments where we're going, "Why is that there? Or what just happened? Or now they have a horse? Where'd the horse come from?" Right. You know this this beautiful shot she was talking about earlier, talking about the this long shot of these guys coming down this very slim little path in the extremely rugged mountains of the Andes. And everybody's on foot. There's no horses there. Then all of a sudden they're in the flats and they have horses. And they have these horses decked out in this weird medieval... Well, it'd be great in the Crusades, mm. but it's not exactly um, what the Spaniards used. Now, there is. it's neat that they have horses because one of the things that every one of the conquistadors said was literally, quote, after God, we owe our victory to our horses because the Indians would stand up to being shot at with musketry, with cannons even. But horses absolutely petrified them because they had no experience with some person erupting out of the back of this animal. There's and even a mention of that toward one of the final mm -hmm. scenes of the films after they've kicked the horse off the raft and the I think it's the, the friar, the priest, yeah. it's the priest says, you know, that was one of the 
big advantages we had was the horses because the natives are all terrified of them. And right. that aside, here we are all starving to death. We could have eaten that thing for a week. But that was, you'll have to watch the movie. Because there's some, I don't want to give you too many spoiler alerts, but it's really the movie's really been out for more than a year. It's okay, okay spoiler to do alerts. So the emperor Fernando de Guzman, yes, <laughs> is upset because the horse is going having a, a, a meltdown while he's eating his meal and orders it pushed overboard. You you had this horse for the last two thousand miles. Why? Why? Suddenly, you decide you can't stand it anymore. Yeah, of course he was too fat to even get on board that horse, but still. The other thing Gordon mentioned this early on when we finally see this horse, and now they're on a raft, and it's like, what is he eating? What's the horse eating? What are they feeding this horse? They don't have enough to feed themselves, and horses need to eat. There's no place to graze him alongside yeah. the river. It's all jungle. It's all jungle, and the water is just. In fact, well, you said that the. The river actually rose 15 feet while they were filming? Yeah. They, um, they're, they've, again, they were filming sort of chronologically, and the scene where they wake up in the morning and there's a little voiceover, the river rose in the night and our rafts are gone. That really happened. There was a storm somewhere upriver, and the river rose 15 feet. It destroyed their rafts. It flooded their camp, and they're like, oh, let's just work this into the story. We'll just, you know, go with it. I have to say, I really like the guy, the, the Quechuan character with the little pan pipe. Oh, yeah. The, the flute. It's, <laughs> Apparently, Herzog loved him, too, because he gives him a lot of screen time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, actually, the best costuming in the whole thing uh, is the locals. the locals. Yeah. They're actually dressed properly. Uh, the Europeans, which you would think Herzog would have at least some clue about because, you know, there are books out there on it. Um, yeah, there's some really nice fabrics in, in their stuff. Oh, speaking of fabrics, all but maybe one of the men in this movie is wearing some weird tutti-frutti colored shirt not no. found in nature. You, nobody had colored shirts. No. Shirts were underwear, which you cleaned by boiling. It doesn't make any sense. Again, it's all community theater Renfair crap. And there's finally, towards the end of a movie, there's one guy with a white shirt and I'm the, like there the, it is the one historical shirt one, in the whole movie and it's properly gathered at the neck yeah just a little little bit of a rough I mean it's a good early 16th century man's shirt yeah and it's not that we hated this movie it was entertaining but I mean Gordon you saw it not in 72 no it, it was got a, 82 in, in 81 or 82 it got um, a, another release went yeah. around to theaters and... in fact my, my very good friend Dale Shin who he spent a lifetime building match locks and wheel lock pistols and things like that, these 16th and 17th century firearms. He called me up and invited me to come go. And so... So you saw this in a theater back in the day. I've only seen clips of it. It was weird even then. You know, I suppose if I'd have been into drugs and stuff, it would have made more sense. <laughs> I don't know. In the end of the day, I just feel like it's a very gritty movie. It's more of a poem than a novel, if you get what I mean, because it's very minimalist. There's not a lot of dialogue. There's no connective tissue to it. There's like this moment and this moment and this moment, and why are they doing this now? And there's very little character development. So well, as you said, it was more like a music video. Yeah, I was at some point, the whole thing could be set to 80s rock and roll music or something, because it just... Because yeah. at least you'd have some decent commentary in the, the, 
words of the music, right? At one point, I'm looking at these guys in their armor, and they've got breastplates, and then this sort of metal yoke over the top of their breastplate that goes all around over their shoulders and around their neck. And I look at Gordon, and I say, is that supposed to be a gorget? And he said, yeah, but it's over the breastplate, which is completely backwards. Right, you don't do it that way. That's not how not you wear it. the 16th century. No. So it was like, oh, yeah, that does. no wonder I was confused. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, in the 18th century, when they didn't know how armor was supposed to work anymore, yeah. they did that occasionally, but... Yeah, it was just for parade anyway. But in the 16th century, they knew what armor was for, and the gorget actually, which is the thing that fits over your shoulders. Protects your neck. neck. It helps support the weight of the breastplate. Yeah. It keeps the, the straps of the breastplate from digging into your shoulders. It yeah. just spreads the weight out over your chest. It just doesn't do anything. And they're wearing the classical uh, Morion helmets, which actually the Spaniards didn't like. The French and the Germans and the English <laughs> wore them all the time, and the Dutch. The Spaniards had it was called a Spanish Morion, which was different. That's what they called a cabaset, because it looks like, basically it looks like a watermelon with a little stem on the top of it. Mm. Um, it mm. had the same kind of brim. Okay, it just doesn't have Morion the fin cabaset. on top. Yeah, and the fan's handy for when somebody's slicing down at you you know, to absorb a lot of the, the stroke of the sword. But the Spaniards didn't use that. However, all the illustrators in the 19th century saw those, and they saw the English and the French and the Germans wearing those, and there weren't a lot of illustrations to Spaniards, so they just assumed that the Spaniards are going to do that. And so they showed all the Spaniards in that. It's so, just like a... So it got into pop culture that that's the conquistador look. Right, it's just like a pilgrim has a tall hat and a blunderbuss and buckles on his shoes, which they didn't have much of any of that. Yeah. So <laughs> some illustrator yeah. in 1850 came up with this stuff. My recommendation, if you want to see a movie about 16th century, I guess, 16th century missionaries and people trying to do something in South America, go pick up a copy of The Mission. It's 18th century. Oh, it's an 18th enough. century. But it's still a much better movie. It's better shot. It has an actual plot. It's got, I think Robert De Niro is the swordsman, mm -hmm. who's basically going off on this to protect these priests in the jungle as a penance mm -hmm. or something. Um, I watched it years ago, and it was it was ki kind of grim, dark. It's beautifully shot. Oh, my goodness. But it also gets into the clash of empires and their yeah. overseas empires between Portugal and Spain, which... It's a lot more layered than yeah. this film. And I <laughs> guess... There's no layering in this. Yeah, there's no layering. It's just <laughs> this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And you know what? I'm sure there are lots of people who still love this movie and think it's awesome. And well, apparently it's a cult classic. It I, certainly it's was just... to my crowd that I was doing 16th century reenacting with at the time. But well, how, we also... how many movies with 16th century Lance Connects in them were there? Very, very few. Yeah, and that's what you guys were doing. Right, we were doing 16th century Lance Connects, and I was really into Spanish colonial history, and so it was the match made in heaven. Well, sort of. Yeah, a lot of what they were talking, doing, they're going downriver, but a lot of the, there's similarity with what the Spaniards going up the Magdalena River from Venezuela into Colombia. Actually, I guess it's from the coast of Colombia anyway, upstream. And there were some horrible things that happened, like some Spaniards got eaten by crocodiles and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's some of that is interwoven. And the fact that, yes, the Spaniards did go over the Andes and they did 
go down the rivers to the mouth of the Amazon where they discovered that the Portuguese were already there. Well, that was fun. No matter how much we complained about it, it's an interesting film, and now I can say I've seen it. The only part I'd ever seen of this was a clip at the very end where he's on the raft with all the monkeys. And so I knew how, I already knew how it was going to end. <laughs> it was just, how do we get there? Well, one of my old friends, this fellow Carl Antas, he actually added some much better dialogue. dialogue in there by Aguirre is holding a monkey and saying, he should have said, I'm surrounded by incompetence, and then threw the monkey overboard. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for tuning in, and now back to Jeff. You know very well who's responsible. If you let him get away with it this time, who knows what he will do next? That's not the problem. We have other things to worry about. There are Indians all around us. Every tree could be hiding one. No one wants to finish up like those poor men on the raft. I will be happy when we get out of this trouble. We're not about to get out of trouble this moment. Don't worry, my dear. He'll follow me. McGeary wouldn't dare to fight against the crown of Spain. But we are not in Castile. Well, thanks, Nancy and Gordon, but I feel we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. I will say I don't think Herzog ever intended this to be taken as historically accurate. And I don't think the film was supposed to be taken literally. It was more like a surreal dream. And in a way, I think I had an advantage in the fact that I knew nothing of conquistadors or how they dressed, what weapons they carried, and such. And frankly, to me, it didn't matter. I can say that when I watched this film for the first time, I was totally absorbed in it and what more can I ask for in a film? Maybe it's a case of ignorance is bliss. As Ed Wood said in the film Ed Wood, filmmaking is not about the tiny details. It's about the big picture. And in some small way, I sort of agree with that to a limit. But here's the way I look at it. Two men are carrying a cannon that in the real world they couldn't possibly carry. In the world of the film, well, they can and I think one thing to keep in mind, this is one of his earliest feature-length films, and it was done for an extremely low budget. And personally for me, I can forgive a lot of the props and costumes for that reason alone. Anyway, I really enjoyed the history lesson. I learned a lot about conquistadors, things that I never knew, and thanks a lot. But now back to my story. One of my favorite scenes, and one that is a good example of just how surreal this film is, Helena Arrojo, whose husband has just been executed, hung from a tree, walks in a daze into the jungle alone to most likely certain death. As the scene cuts to a different angle, suddenly she's wearing this beautiful gold dress. No explanation is given. There's no reason for it. And then she's just gone, almost as if she disappeared. Now, as uh, Nancy pointed out, Herzog often does take whatever happens, and just works with it. She mentioned the flood that washed away an entire set. January 8th. Overnight, the river has risen 15 feet. When will our misfortunes cease? So Herzog just wrote the flood into the story. Or one day, a native Indian brought onto the set a small, rare sloth. He just put it in the film, and it worked really well. When he came across a mentally challenged man who played that wind instrument, he used the man in the film. 
and I have no idea what that musical instrument is, but Nancy, you were right. Herzog really liked the guy, and the man loved hanging around the crew, so Herzog put him in a couple of times. I think it's a great scene where he's playing his instrument, dancing around, smiling. Meanwhile, Klaus Kinski is over on the left, almost frozen, just staring. Again, adding to that surreal feeling that I, I, I personally like. Now, speaking of Kinski and just how crazy he is, there's one scene in which Herzog wanted Kinski to play it quiet and subdued, almost mumbling his dialogue. But Kinski wanted to play it like a raving maniac, loud, yelling his lines, like a madman. What Herzog did was, he got Kinski mad, he got him really fired up, and Kinski went into a screaming fit, and, and Herzog kept him going, antagonizing him for over an hour and a half, till finally Kinski was so tired and worn out that when they filmed the scene, Herzog got exactly what he wanted. And one last thing about Kinski's character, and this goes back again to Nancy and Gordon. I just wanted to point out that according to Herzog's commentary on the DVD, the way Kinski walks, sort of like a hunchback, was all Herzog's idea. He imagined Aguirre walking, as he put it, sort of like a crab, with straps all over his back, as sort of these straps are holding his whole body together. That was his thought, and... How effective it was in the film, well, I guess that's up for debate, right? Now, like always, while I like the film, I wonder what others thought. And for this, of course, I turn to Rotten Tomatoes. And I will say the reviews are mostly positive. It gets a 91% audience score, which is really good. Charles H. gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and he wrote, I was completely spellbound by Aguirre, the Wrath of God. Aguirre is a stunning film. So haunting and powerful film to watch. Slow-paced and intense, the Amazon settings, the music are dauntingly absorbing. Herzog's masterpiece is nothing short of a classic and will continue to inspire other suspense-craving directors and audiences forever. Well, Charlie, you pretty much summed up my take on this film. And most of the reviews are four and five stars, but of course not everyone agrees. David M. gave it one and a half stars, and he wrote... I think this is one of those movies that the critics say they love, then other people say how good it is. But then you watch it and say, what? Honestly, I just thought it was a bunch of randomly shot scenes thrown together to make a loosely coherent story. I disagree with that, but I suspect there are others who do agree. I think there is a very real story here. But anyway, a lot of the bad reviews seem to indicate that people like me just think it's a good movie because the critics say it's a good movie. Like, we're too stupid to think for ourselves. Like I said, people are entitled to their opinion, and I'm entitled to mine. And, and in my opinion, my opinion's right and I won't apologize, so there. The music in the film is pretty odd. It was performed by Popol Vah. Popol Vah is basically a musician named Florin Frick, who writes and plays most of the instruments. I personally couldn't find the words to describe it, so I'll let the late, great Roger Ebert tell you what he thinks. He wrote, The music sets the tone. It's haunting, ecclesiastical, human, yet something else. Herzog and Florin were good friends, and he would use him on a few of his films, such as Nostravatu, The Vampire, and Fritz Corraldo. Speaking of Fritz Corraldo, I was thinking about doing that on the show 
someday, but now I'm not so sure after hearing Gordon and Nancy. We'll talk. And watching this film, you might notice a lot of resemblances to Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 masterpiece, Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now was based loosely on Joseph Conrad's 1902 novella, Hearts of Darkness. Coppola said, Aguirre, with its incredible imagery, was a very strong influence. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. And again, I've heard some of the comments of Apocalypse Now similar to those of Aguirre, that it's just a bunch of scenes thrown together with a very loose plot, but uh, to each his own. Now I'm going to talk about the end. So if you haven't seen this 51-year-old film, you can pause it here and watch it. But come on, if you haven't seen it by now, you're probably never going to watch it. The film goes on, and they head down the river on a raft. And one by one, the characters are killed, and with the feeling of, I don't know, a surreal dream. They get weirder as the film goes on. And at one point, they see a boat up in a tree. How would a boat get up in a tree? Again, it's just a surreal quality. But near the end, with only a few people left, including Geary and his daughter, they're all weak and hungry, and they're sort of losing consciousness. An arrow hits a man in the leg, and the actor doesn't react at all. And personally, I think this is one of the most powerful scenes is when his daughter gets an arrow into her. She doesn't seem to be in pain. She just sort of gazes at a Geary. To me, it's a wonderfully stylized death. And then there's the monkeys. 400 little monkeys that Herzog purchased for the end of the film. And I just love the ending shot of the movie. The camera circles around the raft. Everybody on it dead, except for Aguirre who stands there with his monkeys. And then we cut to ending credits. So okay, I can see that this movie probably isn't for everybody, and that's fine. Me, I've watched it a dozen times, and each time I watch it, I watch it intently and am never bored, and it just sucks me in. I don't know why. Maybe I'm wrong. I admit it. Maybe I'm simple. But anyway... If you've never seen it before, I would give it a shot. You might not like it, but what the heck. I always say this, and I've said this for a long time, it's different. And different to me is always good, because I get so bored with the same old, same old thing. That's why I rarely watch newer movies. I, the wrath of God, will marry my own daughter. And with her found... The purest dynasty ever known to man. Together we will rule the whole of this continent. Okay, the show ran a little long today, so I'm going to wrap things up really quick. I apologize if there's some static in the background during some of my uh, ramblings. I was sort of having a problem with my mic. I re-recorded a bunch of it, but some of it I left in. I hope it's not too bad. Next week, we're going to do the movie Return to Oz. So if you've got some thoughts on that, let me know. Do all the usual stuff. Facebook, Twitter, email. Leave a review. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.